follow me. And Jesus invited his disciples, he called his disciples to follow him. And really that's what it means to be a believer in Christ. It means we make a conscious decision to put behind everything and to follow Jesus. And so in our Follow Me series, we come to Matthew chapter 5, and this morning we're going to be zeroing in on verses 17 to 20. And in these verses, Jesus is speaking about the relationship between his teachings and the teachings of the Hebrew Scriptures. And the title of today's message is Kingdom Greatness. Now, one of the unique features or distinguishing features of Matthew's gospel is that Matthew is the gospel writer who most speaks about greatness in the kingdom of heaven. And just looking uh, online and and doing some study, I found that that, uh, Mark and Luke make reference to greatness in the kingdom of heaven once. John doesn't reference it at all. But in Matthew, there are multiple references to greatness in the kingdom of heaven. And he quotes Jesus as using this statement on multiple occasions. I want to point to a few of them for you. These will not be on the screen. But I know there are a lot of people who take notes. So you might want to just jot down the scripture reference and trust me as I read uh, some of these for you. I want you to listen to our Lord's words in Matthew chapter 18. And he's speaking there and he says this in starting at the first verse, 1 through 4. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus, and they asked, So who is greatest in the kingdom of heaven? He called a child. He had him stand among them. Truly I tell you, he said, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, whoever humbles himself like this child, this one is, look at this, greatest in the kingdom of heaven. I want you to listen again. The same theme, the same message is delivered in Matthew chapter 20. And uh, here what we have is we have a different scene. Here we have Jesus' disciples who are arguing among themselves over seats of honor. And so Jesus speaks up in Matthew chapter 20. And he breaks in on their discussion among each other. And this is what Jesus had to say. Now, when the ten ten disciples heard that the two brothers were demanding to sit on the right and left of Jesus, they became indignant with the two brothers. And Jesus called them over and he said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, and those in high positions act as tyrants over them, but it must not be like that among you. On the contrary, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first among you must be your slave, just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And then there is another reference to this found over in Matthew chapter 11, verses 11 and 12. In Matthew chapter 11, uh, Jesus is speaking here, and... uh, He says this about John the Baptist's ministry in Matthew 11. If I can get there. And look at verses 11 and 12 in Matthew 11. This is what he says there. Matthew 11, 11 and 12. Uh, 
Truly, I tell you, among those born of women, no one greater than John the Baptist has appeared. But the least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has been suffering violence, and the violent have been seizing it by force. Now, these are some of the references that Jesus makes to greatness in the kingdom. But the first appearance of that phrase is found in our text this morning in Matthew chapter 5. And I want you to follow along with me as we begin the reading in Matthew 5, and we're at the 17th verse, and this is what we read there. This is Jesus speaking. Don't think that I came to abolish the law of the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. For truly I tell you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or one stroke of a letter will pass away from the law until all things are accomplished. Therefore, whoever breaks one of the least of these commands and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you'll never get into the kingdom of heaven. I want us to pray. Uh, Father, again, uh, as we have beseeched you all morning, uh, calling on you because, God, we believe you're there. We believe you're here in this place. We believe you know everything about us, and, God, that you hear us when we call on you in the name of Jesus. And so today, God, I pray for myself and for the others that this message, Lord, will find a fresh place in my heart, an openness to receive it, an eagerness to see what the power of the Holy Spirit can do in and through me as you work and you reveal your will to us through your word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. There's a principle that is taught in this passage. And the principle is kingdom greatness is a matter of heartfelt obedience. Let me repeat that. Kingdom greatness is a matter of heartfelt obedience. Now in our text what we see are two very clear pictures First of all, we see the kingdom uh, greatness demonstrated in the life of Jesus. And we see kingdom greatness denied or the principle denied in the lives of the scribes and the Pharisees. So first of all, what I want us to do is I want us to look at verses 17 and 18. And as we look at those verses, I want us to think about the principle demonstrated. Now, the text tells us that as Jesus came and he brought this message to his disciples in chapter 5, back in chapter 4, it tells us that Jesus came preaching the good news of the kingdom. I like that. It's good news. And it was news that people were looking forward to receiving. I mean, they had not received great news of the kingdom like this ever. And so as Jesus talks about this kingdom, as he talks about this good news... I mean, as he describes it, it's a kingdom unlike any other. Nobody's ever seen or heard of a kingdom like this. As Jesus describes it, 
before them, and he begins to talk about kingdom citizens. And quite honestly, it's a kingdom that, as Jesus describes it, there are going to be people in this kingdom, and there are a lot of people going to be in this kingdom, and they don't fit the mold. You see, there's been a mold that has been formed over the centuries by those who are believers in the Torah, those who followed the law of Moses. And this mold was a very tight mold, a very conforming mold in which you were either in or you were out, depending on how you fit into that mold. And we see from the beginning of Matthew's gospel, what do we see? We see that Matthew is describing people who do not fit that mold. They don't fit into that mold. And he wastes no time getting to that, right? I mean, when he's writing this gospel, how does he begin the gospel of Matthew chapter 1? He begins by talking about the genealogy of Jesus Christ. And in that genealogy, there's some folks who don't fit the mold. What does he do next? He goes to the Christmas story, chapter 2. There's people in that from the east. I mean, these are Babylonian wise people who have come from the east to Jesus, and it says they've come to worship him. That's, that's how they come to Jesus. And then we come to chapter 4. And when we get to chapter 4, this is where we find Jesus. And all of these people are coming to Jesus. And they've got all these illnesses. They're sick. And why are they coming? Because the word has spread. Jesus heals people. You want to be made well? Go to Jesus. Run to Jesus. And so people are coming from Syria in the north. That's outside the land of Israel. They're coming from the east, which today is modern-day Jordan. Neither of those people in modern times or in ancient times were considered to be friendly to the Israelites. And so what you have is you've got foreigners here. You've got Gentiles. What was the approach of the religious Jews when it came to Gentiles? Don't come into contact with them or you'll become unclean. And so what you have, you have on this mountain, you've got this mixed bag of people. And some of them we expect to be there. I mean, we would expect religious Jews to be there, but there are all these other people. They look out of place, certainly to the religious Jews. And so logically what happens is you've got these people who are standing there and Jesus sits down. He knows his disciples have questions about this. They're puzzled over this picture. And Jesus sits down. He begins to teach them. And how does he begin? He begins with the Beatitudes in chapter 5, verses 1 through 12. Now, the problem was, Jesus didn't quite teach like the Jewish religious leaders. I mean, people had been taught for centuries what to believe, what orthodox doctrine was. And then here comes Jesus along. And what's all this talk about poverty and meekness and persecution? And so that seems to have provoked some questions. I mean, right? What kind of questions? You teaching something new, Jesus? Where did you get this? Because you see, rabbis only spoke what they had learned from their rabbi. Where did you get this, Jesus? 
I mean, the question comes up in people's minds, are you trying to remove all the people that believed and we've been taught for centuries? I mean, are you ignoring or laying aside Moses and the prophets? And so what does Jesus do? Immediately, he dispels the notion that he's teaching defies the law. And in verse 17, what Jesus says is, what does he say? Don't think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. So when Jesus uses those words, don't think, this is a signal to us that obviously there are some people there who are thinking just that. His teaching was so radical, so antithetical to what they'd been taught and what they'd come to believe that Jesus seemed to be turning established tradition on its ears. You see, the people believed that the law of Moses was the unique possession of the Jews. And to repeal it would have been equated with blasphemy. And so you've got this scene where the religious Jews would have loved nothing more than for Jesus to be teaching something that's just wild-eyed, something that's totally new, something that runs against the teaching of Moses and the Pharisees, I mean uh, Moses and the prophets, because what could they do? They could just dismiss the message as blasphemy. But he teaches them that actually he doesn't stand in opposition to the law and prophets. But he stands in line with the law and the prophets. He says, don't think that I came to destroy it, but I came to fulfill it. Now, if there's any place in the message where I might lose you, it'd be right here. So I want you to pay real close attention, okay? Let me say that again. If there's any place in the message where I'm going to lose you, it'd be right here. Are you going to pay real close attention? Okay, all right. So I got you with me right now. So a lot's going to depend upon how we interpret this word fulfill, right? And I wish I could give you like a slam dunk opinion on this, but there are different beliefs on the meaning of this word fulfill in this text. And they're all biblical, by the way. I wouldn't present any to you that wasn't biblical. Now, one of the thoughts about the word fulfill is that Jesus came in the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. I mean, we get this. Certainly, this is the theme of Matthew's gospel. Uh, We see that one of his purposes of writing his gospel is he gives all these quotations from the Old Testament because he wants to show Jesus is the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy about his coming. I mean, Jesus didn't just pop up on the scene unannounced or unexpected. There have been things that have been pointing to the coming of Jesus, and then you have the birth of Jesus, and then you have the life of Jesus. And one by one, Jesus is checking off all of these boxes that fulfill all the things that are said about him in the Old Testament. And we see in verse 18 this phrase, until all things are accomplished. And so this gives us this interpretation that the word fulfill, one of its meanings could be that Jesus came in fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecies. 
There's a second view, and that is that Jesus came to do the law and his actions fulfilled the righteous requirement of the law. Now, there are 16, I mean, 613 commandments. And I'm thinking about this view, and when I think about this view, think of these 613 commands as a video game, okay? Right? And so what you have is you have this picture of a video game where Jesus is running through all of these obstacles. And while he's running through all of these obstacles, what he's doing is is he is conquering the game. He's winning the game. And he's winning the game for us so that we don't have to play the game. I mean, he has won it so that we don't have to run through all the obstacles on the obstacle course. Jesus has defeated all the levels. And that's one of the views on what fulfill means here. But there's a third view. And the third view is the one that I favor, and I believe Jesus is teaching in here, and I'm going to give you a great deal of Scripture to be able to show you why I believe this. The third view of fulfill is that it means to interpret the law correctly and to walk it out correctly. It means your walk matches your interpretation. And so, in this sense, Jesus is not abolishing Torah, but in effect, what Jesus is doing is, I have not come to abolish, but to fulfill. And when he says, I have come to fulfill it, my interpretation of Torah is going to match how I live out my interpretation. Now, there are two ways you could abolish law. One way you could abolish law is you could abolish it by interpreting it correctly. That is, get it right in your head. You've studied, you've practiced, you're true to the Scriptures. You've got it in your head. You can abolish it by having it right intellectually, but then not live it out accordingly. There's another way that you could abolish the law, and the other way was you could have this attitude that, you know, on the first hand, if you've got, an in, if you've got the correct interpretation, you're not living it out, then the other would be you, what? You don't have the correct interpretation. In which case, it doesn't matter how you live it out. In either instance, this is what is meant by abolishing the law. Now, it is true that in Scripture, words tend to have different meanings or multiple meanings, and that is the case in this Scripture with the word fulfill. All right, I said if I was going to lose you, it'd be right here. So let me connect the dots for you. Without a doubt... The law and the prophets point to Jesus. That's that first interpretation of the word fulfilled. That's all throughout Scripture. But there's more than that here. The focus in the Sermon on the Mount is Jesus' authority to teach and to make claims on the lives of his followers. 
And in doing so, he explains to them precisely what the law and the prophets intended. Now, what I want you to do is I want you to look at your Bible, and I want you to notice with me that what we have in Matthew chapter 5, verses 17 through 20, that's the preamble to everything that's going to follow in Matthew chapter 5, starting at verse 21 and going through the end of the chapter. And what do we find when we look into those passages? We find beginning at verse 21 and 22, what do we hear Jesus saying? You have heard that it was taught by your ancestors. Then verse 22. But I tell you, Beginning at verse 21 and going through the end of this chapter, Jesus is going to repeat this statement several times. You have heard that it was said to our ancestors, but I tell you. You have heard that it was said to our ancestors, but I tell you. And the emphasis in each one of these couplets is on Jesus' authoritative teaching in contrast to the teaching of the day. And what is Jesus saying in those texts? Jesus comes along and he declares what the Word of God means and he appeals to no one but himself. But he's not really teaching anything new. Rather, what Jesus is teaching is he's saying, this is the way Torah was to be understood all along. They taught that a life lived righteously before God must be lived in heartfelt obedience. This is what Jesus is teaching here. This is his message. And Jesus is talking about the righteousness his followers will live out. And his point in this passage is the same point that James makes in his little letter. And in James' letter, when we think of his words and his teaching, his message is simple, right? If you would follow me, your lifestyle matters. Now, the theme of the verses that we studied last week was summarized in that last verse that we came to. And the last verse in Matthew chapter 5, verse 16 says this, Let your light shine before others, so that what? They can see your good works. And glorify your Father in heaven. And all throughout this message that Jesus brings as he's teaching through the Sermon on the Mount, all throughout this message, as he's going through it over and over again, we keep coming across these references that Jesus makes to obeying the Word of God, to living it out, to interpreting it correctly, and then living it out correctly. Even to the point where we come to Matthew chapter 7, verse 21, and we're not there in our study yet, but I want you to listen to what Jesus says there. He says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father in heaven. People are going to come to him having done many things in his name. And what does Jesus say to them in Matthew 7, 23? I never knew you. Depart from me, you who? 
lawbreakers. And then he goes on to say in Matthew 7, 24 and 26, Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and acts on them will be like a wise man. But everyone who hears these words of mine and doesn't act on them will be like a foolish man. You see, the entire Sermon on the Mount is taken up largely with the theme of how followers of Jesus should live. Now, positionally, Christ has become our righteousness. We sang about that this morning. But Jesus is calling us to live out that righteousness in our lives. And Paul echoes that theme in his letters. This is what we're taught over in the book of Romans and also over in the book of Galatians. We also remember that Paul says in Romans chapter 6, we observed believers' baptism this morning, a beautiful testimony. But in Romans chapter 6, what's the question he raises in chapter 6, verse 1? Should we continue in sin that grace may increase? Of course not. So what I want to do is I want to be clear at this point. And my clarifying statement is this, that neither Jesus nor I are teaching a kind of work salvation. That's not the message that's coming across here. Instead, the witness of Scripture is clear. The life of a follower of Jesus will reflect the righteousness of the Savior. Jesus demonstrates the principle kingdom greatness is a matter of heartfelt obedience. And I want you to notice, secondly, the principle denied in verses 19 and 20. Let's read it again. Matthew 5, 19. Therefore, whoever breaks one of the least of these commands and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never get into the kingdom of heaven. Now Jesus' point in his sermon here as he's explaining this to his disciples is he's not talking about imputed righteousness. He's not talking about the righteousness of Christ that has been put to our account. That is a truth. It's taught in Romans, it's taught in Galatians and other places. And it's the truth to which we run. That's our default truth. We, we in our minds, would run there. We would not be incorrect. It's certainly biblical. It's taught, but that's not the emphasis of Jesus in this passage. Instead, Jesus speaks in the context of the covenant that existed between God and Israel. Remember who his audience is? Now, he's not been to the cross yet. He's not died on the cross, been raised yet. He's teaching his disciples, and all these people here, are you doing away with Moses and the prophets? Are you getting away with all that? And Jesus says, no, I'm not getting away. I'm not moving away from that at all. I've come to fulfill it. And I'm going to show you with my life how it was always intended to be taught. Because in their day, that wasn't the message that was being communicated. Everything in the relationship that Israel had with God 
was based upon a covenant relationship that God entered into with them. By an act of his grace, he sovereignly chose the people of Israel. Why? Because I want the whole world to get to know me. Now, I'm going to choose a people. I'm going to reveal myself to you. They're going to see God working in you. And guess what? They're going to say, there is only one God. It's the God of Israel. Let's run to him. That was the whole idea. And you know what it was predicated upon? It's predicated upon this belief in Leviticus. And in the book of Leviticus there we read, right from the get-go, we read uh, that Jesus is talking uh, about and he refers to these statements. And the statement that he refers to there is, you must be holy as I am holy. And jot these verses down, because I want to show you some of these covenant statements that Israel enters into with this holy God. You're to be holy as I am holy. I want you to listen to these statements. These are statements by Moses to the people of Israel. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4 and 5. You recognize that immediately. The Shema. This was repeated by the Jews daily. Hear, O Israel, the Lord, our God is one Lord. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. And what did, what did Jesus say to the lawyer? He said, this is the greatest commandment. This is the greatest command. Now listen to Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 9. Now we're talking about this covenant between God and his people Israel. Again, Moses speaks. Know that the Lord your God is God, the faithful God, who keeps his gracious covenant loyalty for a thousand generations with those who love him and keep his commands. Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse 12. And now, Israel, what does the Lord your God ask of you except to fear the Lord your God by walking in his ways, to love him, to worship the Lord your God with all your heart and all your mind? Deuteronomy chapter 30, verses 19 and 20. Now we're getting ready to come into the promised land. I want you to enjoy the promised land. I want you to enjoy what I provided for you. This is my promise to you. This is the abundance that I promised to you. I want you to enjoy it. Moses says, but I'm not going in with you. And so I'm charging you. I want you to remember this. Be sure you do not forget this. Cling to this and you will enjoy what God is providing for you. Deuteronomy 30 verse 19, 20. I call heaven and earth as witnesses against you today that I have set before you life and death. Blessing and curse. Choose life so that you and your descendants may live. Listen to this. Love the Lord your God. Obey Him. And remain faithful to Him. For He is your life and He will, proclaim, he will prolong your days as long as you live in the land the Lord swore to give to you, your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Well, what does history testify to? Israel did not love God. They left Him. They would repeatedly leave His ways and go their own way. 
And so what happened was, when you do that, you have to redefine holiness. And so in their effort to come back to God and redefine holiness, you know what happens? It becomes a checklist. And you know what they do to the law? They perform major surgery on it. They took the heart right out of it. So they changed the understanding of be holy as I am holy. They took the heart out of it. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. Now, I don't like to brag, but I see the Aikens over here. I just wanted to say, you know, they own Tullahoma Lanes and operated over there, and I've been over there. I don't like to brag, but I carry a 265 bowling average. Now, you know a perfect game is 300. 265 is not too shabby. But I got to tell you, I haven't always liked bowling. In fact, I used to hate to bowl. I'd go to the bowling alley, and my friends, you know, they'd have, you know, they could curl it in there right between the front two pins there, hit it just the right angle, knock them silly. I'm throwing gutter balls. You know, I'm thinking, I hate this game. I'm rolling 100 on a good day, 135. I didn't like the game. But I made one adjustment. Now, when I go bowling, instead of bowling from 60 feet away from the pins, I bowl from 10 feet away from the pins. <laughs> Thus the reason for my 265 bowling average. You see, that's what Israel had done. They made a simple adjustment, and how'd they adjust the game so that it would favor their behavior, what they could do? And it became a checklist. Now, I've got to be honest with you. We love checklists, right? I mean, because I can, put, I can put something in my calendar on my phone and, you know, indicate a reminder in 30 minutes, go do this, and I do that, and then I get this sense of accomplishment. And I have this sense of accomplishment, and I start to feel good about myself. And so I say to myself, in my calendar, love my wife. But I look at that on my calendar, it pops up. And I look at that on my calendar, when it pops up, I read it. But how do you do that? I mean, you know that when I put that goal on my calendar to remind me and it pops up, immediately what happens is it ignores one of the basic principles of goal setting, right? A goal has to be measurable. And so what I do quickly, I change it. And I change it to wash the dishes nightly. 
and I wash the dishes nightly, but my wife doesn't love me any more than she did before I washed the dishes nightly. And so I change it from wash the dishes nightly to bring her flowers. And I bring my wife flowers, and she doesn't love me any more than before I was bringing her flowers. This is getting ridiculous. So I tell my wife as I'm walking out the door, I love you. But I come home, she doesn't love me any more than when I told her I loved her before when I walked out the door. You see what's happened here? I can do all of those things, but unless all of those things are communicated with love, they're just activities. This is where the people of Israel were. It had become a list of things that you could do, and if you did these things, you could feel good about yourself. It, it looked like righteousness, but the heart had been sucked right out of it. Oh, church, this is, this is such a message for us. In the spiritual arena, if the heart is not in it, obedience to God's standard for personal righteousness rather than our own righteousness is not attained. Because, you know, we can always find a way to excuse ourselves. So what does Jesus do? He forces his disciples to learn that the righteousness that must characterize his followers must be a different kind of righteousness. It must be better than that of the scribes and Pharisees. And how must it be better? It must spring from the heart. And so the prophets spoke. And Jeremiah wrote in chapter 31, verses 31 to 34. Jot it down. Look, the days are coming. This is the Lord's declaration. When I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. This one will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors on the day I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke even though I'm their master. The Lord's declaration. Instead, this is the new covenant I will make with the house of Israel after those. The Lord's declaration. I will put my teaching within them and write it on their hearts. I will be their God, and they will be my people. Ezekiel. The prophet writes in chapter 36, verses 26 and 27. I'll give you a new heart. <laughs> 
and put a new spirit within you. I'll remove the heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. I'll place my spirit within you and cause you to follow my statutes and carefully observe my ordinances. Praise the Lord. Our salvation was accomplished by Christ's work on the cross. And now what does he do? He calls us to live out that righteousness which has been put to our account. That the righteousness of Jesus which has been credited to us should be lived out in our behavior. That's what he meant. Let your light shine so that others may See your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. I want to ask you some questions. These are questions that I came up with for myself. I usually find if I ask stuff of myself, maybe it'll hit somebody else. So these are some questions I thought about. Is my life characterized by righteousness that comes from the heart or am I justifying myself and lowering God's standard to simply law-keeping? You can do that in a church. There's a lot of things you do as a church. You can do all those things and check a lot of boxes and leave the heart out of it. Think about this. When we give thanks to God for our food, does that thanksgiving come from a heart that is genuinely thankful for the provision God has given? Or are we doing something that Christians should do to avoid choking? When we observe the Lord's Supper, Are we really remembering Christ or are we doing what people who go to churches like ours do on Sunday morning? When we give, do we give with the genuine sense that all that we have belongs to the Lord, that we're not giving back to God a part of what is His, but we're acting as good managers of His money? When I refuse to give the homeless person $5 because he might spend it on liquor. But then from that point forward, I use that as an excuse for not giving to the poor. How have I not become a Pharisee? Do I justify my lack of engagement with the world or the body of Christ because my family comes first? And then do I neglect my family because 
The Lord's work comes first. Now, these are not all the questions that we could ask. They're just a few. But any other questions we would add to the list would find their center in one question. One question. Am I loving the Lord my God with all my heart and soul and strength? That life will bring great glory to God. That is a better righteousness. That is kingdom greatness. Let us pray. As we prepare our hearts for the observance of the Lord's Supper this morning... I want to give you a few moments just to, to think through and pray through the meaning of that message for you this morning. The observance of the Lord's Supper, like so many things we do in the church, uh, can become something that has the heart sucked right out of it. And so this morning I ask you to listen to the word of the Lord as we prepare to partake. Paul writing to the church For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you on the night when Jesus was betrayed, the Lord Jesus took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also he took the cup after supper, and he said, This cup, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this. As often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So then whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sin against the body and blood of the Lord. So let a person examine himself. In this way, let him eat the bread and drink from the cup. For whoever eats and drinks without recognizing the body eats and drinks judgment to oneself. Father, this morning we are so thankful for your wisdom and plan that included us that Jesus is a Savior 
for oddballs and outsiders and people who don't fit the religious mold. And God, we come to you, we ask for forgiveness where our relationship with you has become a checklist where when we do certain things we feel good about ourselves and when we don't live up to them we make excuses for ourselves. Father, we ask for forgiveness because a relationship with you is so much more than that. It's, it's a relationship. That's what you want. So, Father, thank you for sending Jesus. Thank you, Jesus, that you demonstrated what it means to be a part of the kingdom of God. Thank you, Jesus, that you fully lived up to all the requirements of the law and that you did become righteousness for us. You accomplished for us what we could never accomplish for ourselves because you obeyed the law perfectly. We just want to come to you today, Jesus, and, and thank you because in the Old Testament they, had, they knew they couldn't live up to the law perfectly, so you instituted this system of sacrifices and whereby the people who had failed you could come to you and they could offer a sacrifice. But all those sacrifices were incomplete. So thank you, Jesus for coming and being the perfect sacrifice so that no other sacrifice is needed to be given because it has been done once for all, one for all. Today, Lord Jesus, we take the cup and this wafer and as we take the wafer into our hands, Lord, we remember your body which was broken for us. Take this in remembrance of Jesus. Take and eat it now. Likewise with the cup, Jesus took it. And the scripture tells us that he said, I want you to remember my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And he gave him the cup. And he said, this is the new covenant in my blood. Father, thank you for the new covenant. Gives us a new heart. Take this and drink it in remembrance of Jesus' sacrifice for you right now. Thank you. Thank you, Jesus. Lord, we celebrate this morning because you came preaching the good news of the kingdom of God. Lord, we're grateful we get to sing about that good news. We get to sing about it from our hearts because we've experienced it personally. Lord Jesus, thank you for being with us in this worship service. It's been all about you and all for your glory. And Lord, we know that the best way we can honor you is not just to say, man, wasn't that a great worship service, but to walk out of this place and for the worship time to continue. In Jesus' name. Let's all stand in response and sing, There is a Redeemer.
Son. 